0: Joy and happiness, (laughs) Leviticus 18. It actually is joyful and happy if you obey God at this point. So Leviticus 18, remember we're in the holiness code. The first half of the book deals more with public worship or the external life of the covenant people in a religious sense. 17 to 27 deals specifically with their private responsibilities with the emphasis on their own sanctification and separation from the Gentile nations. If you go back for just a moment to chapter 10, after the incident of Nadab and Abihu, we have this instruction in 10.8. Then the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Do not drink wine or intoxicating drink, you nor your sons with you, when you go into the tabernacle of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations that you may distinguish between holy and unholy, and between unclean and unclean, and that you may teach the children of Israel all the, stat- all the statutes which the Lord <coughs> excuse me, has spoken to them by the hand of Moses." So things concerning the holy and the unholy take place in 17 to 27, unclean and clean, specifically in chapters 11 and f- 11 to 15. Remember chapter 16 is central theologically and literarily in the book. It is the day of atonement. So basically what you have is that the children of Israel come on that day of atonement, they receive the forgiveness of sins. And then 17 to 27 is essentially how then they are to live. As one man Dempster says, the subsequent holiness code in 17 to 26 reveals an important textual logic. After the indicative of sacrificial forgiveness in Leviticus 1 to 6, climactically realized in the Day of Atonement, there is the ethical imperative of holiness. Holiness. And so here in chapter 18, specifically, we have laws regulating sexual morality. So I'll read the chapter, and then we'll look at it in some detail. Not exhaustive detail, as I mentioned last time. I'm not a rabbi. Some of these things are not as easily available to my consciousness as they were to the high priests and the priests in this particular setting. So Leviticus 18.1, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. According to the doings of the land of Egypt, where you dwelt, you shall not do. And according to the doings of the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you, you shall not do. Nor shall you walk in their ordinances. You shall observe my judgments and keep my ordinances to walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. None of you shall approach anyone who is near of kin to him to uncover his nakedness. I am the Lord. The nakedness of your father or the nakedness of your mother you shall not uncover. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. The nakedness of your father's wife you shall not uncover. It is your father's nakedness. The nakedness of your sister, the daughter of your father, or the daughter of your mother, whether born at home or elsewhere, their nakedness you shall not uncover. The nakedness of your son's daughter or your daughter's daughter, their nakedness you shall not uncover, for theirs is your own nakedness. The nakedness of your father's wife's naked, uh, daughter, begotten by your father, she is your sister, you shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's sister, she is near of kin to your father. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister, for she is near of kin to your mother. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's brother. You shall not approach his wife. She is your aunt. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your daughter in law. She is your son's wife. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of a woman and her daughter. Nor shall you take her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness. They are near of kin to her. It is wickedness. "'Nor shall you take a woman as a rival to her sister "'to uncover her nakedness while the other is alive. "'Also you shall not approach a woman "'to uncover her nakedness "'as long as she is in her customary impurity. "'Moreover, you shall not lie carnally "'with your neighbor's wife to defile yourself with her. "'And you shall not let any of your descendants "'pass through the fire to Molech, "'nor shall you profane the name of your God. "'I am the Lord. "'You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. "'It is an abomination.'" "...nor shall you mate with any animal to defile yourself with it, nor shall any woman stand before an animal to mate with it. It is perversion. Do not defile yourselves with any of these things, for by all these the nations are defiled, which I am casting out before you. For the land is defiled, therefore I visit the punishment of its iniquity upon it, and the land vomits out its inhabitants." You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, and shall not commit any of these abominations, either any of your own nation or any stranger who dwells among you. For all these abominations the men of the land have done, who, who were before you, and thus the land is defiled, lest the land vomit you also, when you defi- uh, vomit you out also when you defile it as, you vom- as it vomited out the nations that were before you. For whoever commits any of these abominations, the persons who commit them shall be cut off from among their people. Therefore, you shall keep my ordinance so that you do not commit any of these abominable customs which were committed before you and that you do not defile yourselves by them. I am the Lord, your God. Amen. Well, as we see in this particular chapter, the primary emphasis is upon sexual morality. So I want to look first at the exhortation to Israel in verses 1 to 5. Secondly, the prohibitions given to Israel in verses 6 to 23. And then the chapter ends with a warning to Israel in verses 24 to 30. And it's significant because it is formulated in the manner of a covenant. And we see God's uh, revelation via covenant, say, in the Ten Commandments, we see a pattern similar here. You have basically a preamble there in 18, 1 and 2, then the exhortation proper, and then the promise of blessing in verse 5, and then the threat of sanction at the end of the particular chapter. So within a covenant document, you have a covenant chapter to express God's uh, Uh, disapproval of the conduct of the Canaanites and the land to which they are going. So let's look first at the exhortation. Notice again that preamble, verses 1 and 2, we are reminded of God, the Lord, his relation to them, and thus his authority over them. So then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord, your God. And he punctuates this revelation with that statement a few times, again, to indicate his covenant lordship over them, and therefore his authority over them to command them with conduct that is necessary for life in the land. And then notice the exhortation proper. He gives them a prohibition in verse 3. He points to the example of the Egyptians in the land that they had come out of, and he points to the example of the Canaanites in the land to which they were going. And in both instances, the Egyptians and the Canaanites were wicked. When you read through this particular chapter, God's not just making things up. He's not just willy-nilly suggesting that these things may actually occur in terms of your approach to, to sexual ethics. It had been done by the Egyptians, it had been done by the Canaanites, and unfortunately it will be done by the Israelites. One man, uh, Andy Hamilton, he's the fellow whose wife sends us the updates concerning Myanmar. He preached a series of, or a couple of sermons on, on sexual ethics many, many years ago. And one of the things he mentioned in there is that it, co- it should cause us to hang our heads in shame that God actually has to tell us, or have a command, a positive statement in Scripture that we're not to have relations with animals. I mean, man's degradation is thorough. Solomon was not kidding. In Ecclesiastes 7.29, God made man upright, but they have sought out many devices. And many of those devices are sexual in nature. And so God demands and God commands that the people of Israel avoid the example of the Egyptians and the Canaanites. Commentators say that uh, uh, bestiality, as one of the sins that we'll see later on, was pretty common in the land of Canaan, among the Canaanites. So again, these aren't just things that God made up in an attempt to try and scare the children of Israel off from any kind of vileness. No, these were real live actual ethical violations of God's law. So God says, avoid the conduct of the Egyptians, avoid the conduct of the Canaanites. And right in the midst of there, he again underscores his graciousness to them in terms of his provision of the land. Notice in verse 3, according to the doings of the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you, you shall not do. So it's grace that should function as the impetus to pursue holiness. Now we see that even more clearly specified in the New Testament, in the New Covenant. When Paul argues in Romans chapter 6, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? May it never be. Before he ever gets to the imperative of don't let uh, sin reign in your members, he starts with the gospel. You died. You were buried. You were resurrected or raised again with our Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel serves as the primary impetus for the people of God to pursue holiness. Not that they don't have any regard for the law, not that the Spirit doesn't use the law, but we do so in the context of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So God says, where I am bringing you once again to highlight not only the fact that he has provided for them this land, but the fact that he is the one who delivered them from the bondage in Egypt, the one that's going to sustain them in the wilderness and bring them ultimately to that land of Canaan so that they can indeed inherit what God had promised And then notice specifically in terms of the prohibition at the end of verse 3, nor shall you walk in their ordinances. I doubt that the Canaanites and the Egyptians had actual laws on the books that you were to engage in these sorts of things. I think the last verse in the chapter sort of explains what's in view here. It's not ordinances in the sense that these are statutes written by their lawgivers that you obey, but notice in verse 30, therefore you shall keep my ordinances so that you do not commit any of these abominable customs. So the idea there is abominable customs. Don't observe the things that the people of uh, Canaan had observed prior to your arrival there in the land. And you can see where this would be very much a temptation. They're told to go in and dispossess the land of the Canaanites. We know that they did not do that effectively. We know that because the Bible tells us so. God knew that because he's sovereign over all things. He knew that they weren't going to effectively dispossess the land of the Canaanites, and he knew that eventually they would take on the characteristics of the Canaanites. So he puts this legislation in place to to warn them and to guard them and to alert them uh, as to the uh, uh, the potential dangers that they face in going into the land of Canaan. And then notice he gives this positive commandment in verse 4. You shall observe my judgments and keep my ordinances to walk in them. Once again... I am the Lord your God. He punctuates these commands with that reference, uh, reference to, again, show his relation to them and to show his sovereign authority over them. And then verse 5, you shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which, which if a man does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. We'll visit that later on when we come to apply the whole message that, uh, later on. But suffice it to say right now, that's a general principle for life in the land in terms of temporal privilege for the children of Israel. You go into the land, you conduct yourself in a manner consistent with the law of God, and you can expect blessing. The book of Deuteronomy, well, Leviticus ends that way, but the book of Deuteronomy, even more comprehensively, ends with a series of blessings and curses. You go into the land and do what you're supposed to do, you'll get blessed. You go into the land and you don't do what you're supposed to do, and you'll get cursed. So the general principle there in verse 5, again, temporally conditioned, is if a man does these things, he shall live by them. In other words, take the law of God in this covenant of works, do what God says, and God will bless you. The obvious flip side of that is if you disobey, you'll be cut off. If you disobey, you'll be exiled. If you disobey, you'll be disenfranchised from the land that I am giving to you. So that's the exhortation. Now, notice the prohibitions given to Israel in verses 6 to 23. We have first laws forbidding incest in verses 6 to 18. We'll not go through all that in detail. And then laws forbidding other abominable practices in verses 19 to 23. Let's look at these laws forbidding incest. Now, our confession speaks to this, I think, very clearly and very effectively. In the chapter 25 of marriage, it gives a general definition of marriage in in paragraph 1, says a couple of other things, and then in paragraph 4, it gives this particular qualification regarding marriage. It says, marriage ought not to be within the degrees of consanguinity. Consanguinity is a relationship by blood. Consanguinity is forbidden in terms of marriage. If you share blood, DNA, with another person, you're not supposed to marry them. That's one of the the emphases here in Leviticus chapter 18. So marriage ought not to be within the degrees of consanguinity or affinity. Now, affinity is a relationship by marriage. Affinity is a relationship by marriage. That's covered here as well in this particular chapter, Leviticus 18. So it says, marriage ought not to be within the degrees of consanguinity or affinity forbidden in the word, nor can such incestuous marriage ever be made lawful by any law of man or consent of parties, so as those persons may live together as man and wife. So the divines say that man doesn't have the authority to overrule the word of God. Man doesn't have the authority to subjugate the law of God and do whatever it is he wants to do in terms of his approach to love and marriage. We see this command, uh, uh, in the, rather in the confession. The proof text is simply this: the reader is referred to the 18th chapter of Leviticus. It's a great proof text. That's a, a comprehensive look here at Leviticus 18:6 to 23. But as well, uh, I'm sorry, 6 to 18, we see it repeated in Deuteronomy 22, 30, Deuteronomy 27:20, 20, Deuteronomy 20, uh, uh, 27, and 23. So it's repeated in the Old Testament, a, f- a prohibition against incest, but this is in the apostle's mind in 1 Corinthians 5. You can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul's not spitballing here in terms of a new covenant ethic that is devoid of any Old Testament background. Notice in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. Most likely that's not his mother. It's his father's wife. Where does the Bible forbid a man having his father's wife? Either his first wife, the man's mother, died, and he took on another wife, or he's divorced, he has another wife. So for this son to go into his father's wife is incest. It is uh, forbidden by affinity. And so Paul, again, is not bringing some new thing to bear upon the Corinthian church. He is rather loaded with Leviticus 18, condemning this practice or this activity that obtains here in the church in Corinth. And then notice, not only did the man do this, and not only did the people know this, but in verse 2, and you are puffed up, and have not, rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. So not only did it happen, but it happened and the people of God in the church in Corinth were actually puffed up about it. Perhaps they thought that, you know, God's grace, uh, uh, let us continue in sin that grace may abound. Perhaps they had some unbiblical reasoning like that. But going back to Leviticus 18, we see that this is a big deal with God. Now, of course, prior to this, people married their sisters. Brothers married their sisters. Cain and Abel in the first family, they had to by way of necessity. But once they started to multiply, that was no longer the case. And so this particular chapter, at least verses 6 to 18, speaks to this particular issue. Now, I want to make just a few miscellaneous observations with reference to some of the particulars. Notice the general statement in verse 6. None of you shall approach anyone who is near of kin to him to uncover his nakedness. Now, uncover his nakedness here is a euphemism. It means to have sexual congress or to marry somebody, which would involve sexual congress. So that's the particular thing thing. That's the offense. This uncovering of nakedness. Certainly if somebody is bleeding out of their their lower extremities and you have to remove their their skirt or pants in order to get a band-aid on it, that's not what's in view here. The idea is sexual congress, sexual relations, and that's the overarching theme here. So none of you shall approach anyone who is near of kin to him to uncover his nakedness. So a man is prohibited from such with his mother, his sister, and his brother or his daughter. And then the woman is prohibited from such with her father, brother, and son. Those who are near of kin, there is a prohibition in terms of any sort of sexual relationship. And then in terms of the various categories, there are a multitude there in verses 7 to 18. Again, we're not going to unpack all of them. I just want to make a couple of observations. Notice in verse 8, the nakedness of your father's wife, this is the incident in 1 Corinthians 5 1, the nakedness of your father's wife, you shall not uncover it. Notice this curious language. It is your father's nakedness. The same sort of convention is used over in verse 16. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife, it is your brother's nakedness. Well, what does that mean that, that a husband's a, a, a wife's nakedness it belongs to the husband? Well, I think it speaks concerning two things, the relationship that obtains between a married couple. Genesis 2.24, they are one flesh, but I also think it suggests intimacy. It suggests intimacy in light of the new covenant, in light of the new Testament. I don't think that's a stretch. Uh, wife's nakedness belongs to her husband, just like a husband's nakedness belongs to her wife. his wife not to be paraded about, it's not to be displayed for others, it is not to be shared with others. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, specifically in verse 3, let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. He's talking about sexual relations in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. This is why, by the way, Sophia is not here tonight. I had mentioned that it's probably best that she do not come. Uh, I know this is adult theme, but I hope all of us can handle what Scripture says concerning this. Notice in verse 4, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, But the wife does. What's the implication? Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self control. So, going back to Leviticus chapter 18, it's interesting. Yeah, there's this. Owning of the nakedness of your spouse by way of relation, one flesh relationship, but as well by way of intimacy, not to be shared, not to be, you know, spread abroad, not to be published to anyone else. And then notice as well the prohibition back in Leviticus 18 related to uncles and aunts in verses 12, 13, and 14. This would be the place I would insert by implication cousins. Cousins. Now, that's probably not going to win the day with everybody, but that's where I'm comfortable. And I'm not, an a-, I- I'm not a rabbi and I'm not, you know, a-, a guy that knows everything about the gene pool and all that sort of thing. But typically, I would advise persons outside of the co- uh, relationship in terms of first cousin. That seems to be a bit close in terms of the particulars. But with reference to aunts and uh, uncles and aunts, you see that in verses 12, 13, and 14. Matthew Poole has an interest, interesting comment here. He says, Some infer from hence that it is unlawful for cousin Germans. German here means one sprung from the same stock, specifically a full brother, sister, or cousin. So he says, Some infer from hence that it is unlawful for cousins or the children of brethren and sisters to marry. But there is not the same reason nor the same degree of distance, for my uncle or aunt are nearer akin to me than their children are. Yet because it seems doubtful to many, and may hereafter prove occasion of grievous perplexities of mind, especially to tender and scrupulous consciences, Christian prudence directs us to choose the safest way, there being so great a latitude of unquestionable persons. I found that refreshing because not every commentator deals with that. When you read through this section, you don't see the specific, can't marry your cousin, So again, it's an implication based on aunts and uncles. I think it's an implication that does have a degree of warrant, but I think that Poole puts it in a context where, hey, you can't make a hard and fast rule, but as a general rule for the tender consciences, you might want to consider going in this particular direction. And then one other observation here is that there does seem to be a limitation on affinity. Affinity, again, is a relationship by marriage. If you look specifically at verse 16, verse 16, notice what we read there. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. Now, I think in context, it specifically means while they are alive. There is something called the law of the Leveret in Levitic uh I'm sorry, Deuteronomy chapter 25, I think around 10 to 15. And the uh, uh, Leveret law simply means that if a woman dies child or uh, a woman is married and her husband dies childless, then her brother has the his brother rather has the responsibility to go into her and to give her seed. So there is at least what appears to be a check on affinity. There's a limitation once the relationship is set by death, then affinity no longer binds the particular parties involved. And then I think verse 18 goes that way as well. Nor shall you take a woman as a rival to her sister to uncover her nakedness while the other is alive. But if she's dead, I don't see anything in the chapter that would preclude preclude somebody marrying the the woman's sister. Now that might be a little odd and awkward. Yes. Yes. Yeah, again, those were things that happened before this legislation came. Um, And even so, there are sins committed by even God's people in the Bible. So just uh, polygamy. I think polygamy is a very uh, excellent example. Uh, God's intention in creation was one man and one woman. Well, whence the various multiplications of wives? What David did, what Solomon did, obviously, but David too. We can't condone activities like that. Most likely, kings of Israel did it in league with the kings in the ancient Near Eastern world for political purposes. In other words, you multiply wives with your other with other kingdoms so that you have political inroads. So, but but yeah, there's sin. People did sin. People did wrong things. Even David, a man after. God. God's own heart. So things that we have the law, but we have even instances of law breaking within the same same situation. So uh, verse 18 seems to indicate that same observation with reference to affinity. Once one party dies, then the person is no longer bound by that relationship. So again, probably a lot more to be said with reference to law's Forbidding incest, I'll leave that to you in your personal devotional time. Notice next, a laws forbidding other abominable practices in verses 19 to 23. In the first place, you've got uh, the prohibition against relations during menstruation. So notice in verse 19, Also you shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness as long as she is in her customary impurity. The Geneva Bible here has, If she has her flowers... I don't know how they ever came up with that as referring to menstruation, but so it is uh, if she has her flowers. So this is something that we've already seen in chapter 15, specifically at verse 19. If a woman has a discharge and the discharge from her body is blood, she shall be set apart seven days and whoever touches her shall be unclean until evening. Of course, we have it here. It's also in Ezekiel chapter 22, where God upbraids the nation for their sin against him. And there's all kinds of things that are leveled against them. And interestingly or intriguingly, this comes up as well. So in Exodus chapter 22, notice in verse 6, look, the princes of Israel, each one has used his power to shed blood in you. In you, they have made light of father and mother. In your midst, they have oppressed the stranger. In you, they have mistreated the fatherless and the widow. You have despised my holy things and profaned my Sabbaths. In you are men who slander to to cause bloodshed. In you are those who eat on the mountains. In your midst, they commit lewdness. In you, men uncover their father's nakedness. In you, they violate women who who are set apart during their impurity." One commits abomination with his neighbor's wife. Another lewdly defiles his daughter-in-law. And another in you violates his sister, his father's daughter. In you they take bribes to shed blood. You take usury and increase. You have made profit from your neighbors by extortion and have forgotten me, says the Lord God. We see it, 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 it is in that particular section as well, so it's not something simply confined there. In fact, you can see the sort of background of Leviticus 18 there in Exodus chapter 22. So back to Leviticus 18, we next have the prohibition against adultery. The prohibition against adultery in verse 20, moreover, you shall not Lie carnally with your neighbor's wife to defile yourself with her. And again, this isn't the only place that this is recorded. It is recorded as well in chapter twenty, verse ten. There it is a capital offense, where we see that the death penalty is the sanction. twenty ten the man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer, and the adulteress, shall surely be put to death. Remember when they come to Jesus and they say, we caught this woman in the very act. Well, the law stipulated not only her death, but the death of the man. They were not concerned about the law of Moses. They were concerned with trying to trap Jesus. If they were concerned with the law of Moses, they would have brought the man. Because if she was caught in the very act, there had to have been a man present. So they didn't care one bit about the law of Moses. They only wanted to test Jesus. And that's precisely what John tells us there in John chapter 8. So Leviticus 20:10, as well, Deuteronomy 22:22, Matthew 5, 27 to 32. Now their interpreters say, well, Jesus elevated the law there in Matthew chapter 5, 27 to 32. He went from just the external act of commission of the said to the internal act of lusting after a woman in your heart. But you see, Jesus doesn't do that. The Old Testament forbid lusting in your heart as well. The Old Testament law was never only confined to the external man. The Old Testament law penetrated the heart of man, and you were not allowed to lust after your neighbor's wife in the Old Testament any more than you were to to lust after her in the New Testament. When Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, but I say to you, he's not pitting himself against Moses, he's pitting him and Moses against the scribal and Pharisaic misinterpretation of the law, because the Pharisees and the scribes said, well, as long as you haven't actually gone into your wife in a physical sense then you're not guilty Jesus says no and Moses says no it is wrong to lust and then of course Romans 13 9 we see Paul apply the law of God in terms of how do we love one another Romans 13 9 law or love is the fulfillment of the law don't murder your brother and sister don't murder your friend or your neighbor don't commit adultery with his or her wife or husband and don't steal from them that's concretely how you love one another You can bring them flowers, you can bring them coffee, but objectively, don't go into their wives don't have relations with their fathers, and don't steal from them, and certainly don't murder them. That's a better form of love than the flowers or the coffee. And then, of course, Galatians 5.19, it's a a work of the flesh. And then James 2.11, where he highlights the royal law. If you break one aspect, you break the entirety of the law. The sin of adultery is oftentimes singled out in the Old Testament. One, because it's an attack upon the family. Family is the basic building block of society. Destroy the family, you destroy society. You ought not to be surprised at why they're trying to destroy the family, because they want to destroy society and rebuild it in their sick, twisted, demented way. This is what God has established for the propagation of the race, for the protection of people, and for the the, the blessing of God upon the created order. The, 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 the civil government is to function as a servant to the family. The family is more uh, foundational than the government. The government functions in that capacity of ministerial. The family is ultimately the one that is the foundation stone in a civil society. The prophets frequently attack adultery as, an, as a societal evil. And oftentimes, when you trace through the prophets, they deal with second table breaches of the law in light of first table breaches of the law. In other words, you reject God, you engage in idolatry, you engage in profanity, and all these other things happen, just like Paul does in Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against what? All ungodliness and unrighteousness. And then he starts his exposition of those sins with ungodliness. For although they knew that God exists, they neither uh, glorified God nor were they thankful in their hearts. Their foolish hearts were darkened. And then God gives them up to engage in all manner of lawlessness and evil. And then as well, note the specific emphasis here in uh, uh, Leviticus 18.20. Moreover, you shall not lie carnally with your neighbor's wife to defile yourself with her. Certainly it defiles her. Certainly it ruins the family. But there is a degradation involved in sin. There is a degradation of the human when he or she engages in sinful activity. You don't come out the winner. You don't come out more solid. You don't come out more whole. You come out degraded. Idolatry, adultery, these sins, they destroy a man. They destroy a woman. Turn to the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 6. Solomon emphasizes this very vividly. Hey, Beck, can you give me a drink of water, please? Proverbs chapter 6. Let's pick up reading in verse 20. Bit of a lengthy section, some good lessons here. I'm capitalizing on adultery. That seems to be the the preferred sin in the church versus uh, bestiality and some of the other things. So it's good for us to fill our minds with this as, as God's redeemed people so that we don't go astray. Notice in Proverbs 6.20, My son, keep your father's command and do not forsake the law of your mother. Bind them continually upon your heart, tie them around your neck. When you roam, they will lead you. When you sleep, they will keep you. And when you awake, they will uh, speak with you. Thank you. For the commandment is a lamp and the law a light, reproofs of instruction of the way of life to keep you from the evil woman, from the flattering tongue of a seductress. Do not lust after her beauty in your heart. So Jesus isn't elevating, Jesus is simply expounding, Jesus is clarifying, Jesus is teaching that it's not simply external in terms of the the sin of adultery or fornication, but the sin is internal. When you lust after a woman in your heart, you've broken the commandment. Nor let her allure you with her eyelids, for by means of a harlot a man is reduced to a crust of bread. Notice, there's two different persons involved here. We've got a harlot, 26a, and then an adulteress in 26b. And an adulteress will prey upon his precious life. Can a man take fire to his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be seared? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her shall not be innocent. This isn't a simple act of fornication. Not that that's okay, but this is adultery. We see that again, 26b, and then we see that emphasis in 29. So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. You see the degradation of the sinner in the, pa- in the verses that follow. And the degradation of the sinner is not only what happens to him in terms of conscience, but it also happens to him in terms of judgment. Notice in verse 30, people do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he is starving. Nobody's surprised about that, are they? Guy says, you know, I stole this turkey because I was starving and my family was starving. Okay, it's wrong. You got to pay back. You got a deal. You can't have it because it's theft. But you're not surprised. You're not shocked. You don't. So I can't believe you'd steal a turkey to feed your dying family. Nobody responds that way. Solomon is a realist. Solomon has Solomon has something that kings are not kings. Yeah, kings authorities in our day, they don't have. They have no connection with civil society. They have no connection with where people are at. They have no connection with what inflation is. They have no connection with gas prices. They have no connection with the the need for for self-defense and protection. They're surrounded by people with guns and bodyguards and all that sort of thing. They don't care. They have no connection. Solomon wasn't a king like that. Solomon knew what was happening in the lives of people. And he he makes this truism. People don't despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he is starving. Yet when he is found, he must restore sevenfold. He may have to give up all the substance of his house. He's not clearing him. He's not saying it's okay. Go ahead and steal. No, but it's not a surprise. Listen to verse 32. Whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. He who does so destroys what? His own soul. He defiles himself with her. Wounds and dishonor he will get, and his reproach will not be wiped away. Well, how is that? For jealousy is a husband's fury. The husband's going to show up at his house and smack him and dot his eye, and bloody his lip, and hurt him for what he has done to his bride and to his family. For jealousy is a husband's fury, therefore he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will accept no recompense, nor will he be appeased though you give many gifts. And notice that Solomon just treats this as a reality. He's not going to get involved as the king. You go into your neighbor's wife and your neighbor dot your eye. That's what you've got coming, pal. De- uh, adultery is degradation. It destroys the soul of a man or a woman. And that's the emphasis there in Leviticus 18.20. Uh, Moreover, you sh- uh, shall not lie carnally with your neighbor's wife to defile yourself with her. And then the next sin or the next prohibition is against child sacrifice, verse 21. Now, it's, at this point, we should probably start to tremble a bit living in a land like we live in, where adultery is, you know, not even, not even blushed at anymore. I mean, it's just accepted. It's just the way it is. It's, it's just sort of the norm. Child sacrifice. Yeah, that, that's happening. Don't you make any mistake about it. May not be with Moloch standing there with his arms out, but it's happening. Notice in verse 21, you shall not let any of your descendants pass through the fire to Moloch. Nor shall you profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. Molech seemed to be the god of the Ammonites, their primary deity or, or idol. This is a, a, a prohibition that's repeated in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 10. And the idea is passing through the fire to Molech. Now, some suggest the babies were already killed and then thrown into the fire. Others suggest that they were thrown into Moloch's arms, bounced off and into the fire. Either way, it was a ghoulish, wicked, vile practice where babies were being destroyed for religious worship. This is something that King Ahaz does, according to 2 Kings 16.3. Intervenge Josiah in his righteous reign in 2 Kings 23, uh, enacts uh, uh, a means by which this will not continue. Psalm 106, 37 and 38 indicates that this took place. Among the Israelites, again, Ahaz was a king in Israel. So it wasn't that they kept away from all these abominations of the Canaanites. And again, God knew this. You go into the land if you don't dispossess it. Before long, you will be imitating them. Before long, you will be worshiping with them. This is the emphasis in James one: pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God and the Father is this—to keep uh, 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 visit widows and orphans in their distress and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Why is that? Because the world is a contagion. And it's not the case that we're going to go out and fix the world. It's usually the case that the world's going to fix us. It's like, and I hate to admit this, but when I was growing up, guys would wear white pants. I hope nobody's wearing white pants here. White pants get dirty the moment you put them on. It's like, that's kind of how the sinner is. We're going to go out and fix the world. Now, you need to be very careful, very guarded, very much alert to the reality that most likely the contagion isn't your holiness to the unholiness of the world, but it's the unholiness of the world to you. So God tells the children of Israel to get rid of all the Canaanites, because if you don't get rid of all the Canaanites, you're going to be visiting with them, you're going to be having coffee with them, and then you're going to go to Baal services and Molech services, and you're going to throw your babies into the fire. And then notice the particular reason appended or attached to this law. You shall not let any of your descendants pass through the fire to Molech, nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. I thought Matthew Poole's comment here was very helpful. Neither shalt thou profane the name of thy God, either by joining him with or by forsaking him for such a base and bloody idol, whereby the name, honor, and service of God would be horribly defiled and exposed to the scorn of the heathen, as if he were but one of the same kind with their mongrel deities. Listen to what he says. Either by joining him with or by forsaking him for. Typically, idolatry in Israel was one or the other. You either had other gods before or besides God's uh, uh, Yahweh, or you had other gods in addition to Yahweh. You'd like that Baal was the storm god. I'll pray to him because I've just planted my seed and I need some rain. Yahweh might be busy. Uh, He might be doing something else. And I'm going to cover my bases here and I'll pray to Baal. And, you know, Moloch seems to be the, the patron saint of family planning, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go worship at his feet with my, my baby that, you know, I don't want to have to, to bring up and, and all that sort of thing. It's called syncretism. It's when we try to marry another religious system or, or another deity with the living and the true God. That is commonplace in Old Covenant Israel probably not the case. The majority report isn't we just completely forsake you God or Yahweh and we follow after this. No, they probably tried to cover their bases. We want Yahweh for this and we want Baal for this. And we want Moloch for this. And we want Asherah for this. And we want to have this pantheon like the, the, the nations around us. And so I think uh, this pool is right on there. Next, fourthly, is verse 22, the prohibition against homosexuality. And again, this is not unique to this code, this holiness code. Notice what he says in verse 22, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman, it is an abomination. Now this obviously applies the other way, a woman shouldn't lie with a woman as she lies with a male. It's obviously a prohibition in both directions for male and female homosexuality. You see the instance of this in Genesis 18 and 19, this is where we get the word sodomy from the sodomites because that was their peculiar particular sin that they engaged in. You have Leviticus eighteen twenty-two. here. You've got Leviticus 20, verse 13. If a man lies with a male as he lies with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. And then, of course, you see this repeated in the New Testament. You can turn to Romans chapter 1. Today we're being told that, well, as long as monogamous homosexuality, that's, what, that's, what, that, that's, that's okay. God's okay with monogamous ho- homosexuality, a loving homosexual union. No, God abominates homosexuality. We've we got to quit capitulating. We've got to quit trying to give ground away in terms of what God's word says. God made the world Everything in it. He is supreme lawgiver, and he has intended that men and women have relations together. He intended that fish swim, he intended that birds. Uh, fly, and he intended that men are men, women are women, and men and women have relations together so that they can procreate and have children. That's not the only purpose, but it's certainly one of the purposes. So in Romans 1, notice in verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. First Corinthians chapter six. You probably know that the Corinthians were wicked. The city of Corinth was bad, lots of fornication, lots of adultery, lots of sexual perversion. There was a verbal form of the, the, the noun Corinth, to Corinthianize, meant to have sexual relations. There were temple prostitutes. There were all sorts of those, uh, all those kinds of things. Notice what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers. Now notice he uses two terms here, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites. We think, well, he's saying the same thing twice. No, he's using technical language. He's using technical terminology. The one term is the passive partner in a homosexual relation, and the other is the the active partner in a homosexual relationship. So Paul knows his vocabulary. He knows his Greek, and he knows sin and sinners. And so he speaks specifically to that. Now, when it comes to this, there's other sins there. The church shouldn't only be about the condemnation of homosexuality. Notice how he starts the list, neither fornication. Fornicators are under the same wrath of God, just like homosexuals are under the wrath of God. Uh, Idolaters, adulterers, uh, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, uh, extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. But notice the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. This is how we know it's not a DNA thing. You're not hard- hardwired this way. You're not made this way. You can stop being homosexual. You can stop being an adulterer. You can stop being an idolater. When you come to that fountain that's open for sin and uncleanness, when you are justified freely by grace, when you receive the uh, the imputed righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ and enter into the life of sanctification, you can put on the Lord Jesus Christ and to make no uh, make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. It cannot be the case. Well, I, I was just just made this way, and I'm always going to be this way. No such were some of you. You were this way, you are no longer this way. That means it's not like, you know, being black or being white or being some, you know, having green eyes or blue eyes. There are certain things you cannot change. There are other things you can change. To classify homosexuality or transgenderism along with being black or white or having blue eyes or green eyes is diabolical. Brethren, the condemnation of sin is the beginning point of healing and remedy. If we don't tell sinners they're sinful, we can't tell them about the Savior who redeems to the uttermost. We're told, well, if you tell people that, you'll make them feel bad. They need to feel bad so that they see the glory of Jesus Christ as the one who can cleanse them, as the one who does forgive, and as the one who can keep them and empower them to live in a way that is pleasing to God Almighty. 1 Timothy chapter 1, final emphasis there. Uh, in terms of uh, this particular sin. Again, something that needs to be spoken to because there's a lot of professing churches today capitulating at this point. Notice in 1 Timothy 1.8, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Knowing this, now isn't that beautiful language? The law is good if one uses it lawfully. What does that mean? There's unlawful ways to use the law. There are unlawful ways to use the law. If I stand in the pulpit on Sunday and say, obey, and you'll go to heaven, that is an unlawful use of the law. A lawful use is, look at the law, see your sin and misery, and may it show you the glory of Jesus Christ as Savior. A lawful use of the law is for the blood-bought child of God who has the Holy Spirit, we call it the normative use of the law. The law functions as a pattern to tell you what God is pleased with and what God is displeased with. Those are lawful uses of the law. And so Paul then goes on, and he appeals to what? The law. And some commentators, and I think with great merit here, see a reference to each of the Ten Commandments. Every one of the Ten Commandments is what Paul refers to here. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person. I think what he means in this sense, he's not exhausting the use of the law here, when he says it's not made for a righteous person. I think he's talking about the law functioning in what we call the civil or political sphere. The law for counterfeiters doesn't affect us, does it? I I doubt any of you have that as a remaining corruption. Man, I just, I got to get to my washing machine. I got to get to my notes. I've got to print. That's not a law that affects us. We don't have a problem with it. That's what I think he means there. The law is not made for a righteous person. In other words, in the civil or political use, the first use of the law, as long as you're doing what you're supposed to do, you don't have a problem with the law. So, but he goes on to say, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers uh, and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which was committed to my trust. So, going back to Leviticus 18, again, it's not confined to this holiness code, but we see it all throughout Scripture. And then the last one is the prohibition against bestiality. Bestiality, relations with an animal. Now, you might think, well, why this? Well, it's not just here. It's in Exodus 22, 19. It's here. It's 20, uh, Leviticus 20, 15, and 16, and then again in Deuteronomy 27 and 21. There's a particular news site I look at, and I just typed in their search bar, bestiality. Uh, That's kind of what I do for fun. No, just kidding. It was in preparation for this tonight because I've just noticed over the last few years more and more articles on bestiality. Like, really? Yeah, this particular, there were several articles going back to like 2015, you know, that recent. And then there's, I don't know if he's still the, the, the professor of bioethics at, at uh, Princeton University, a, a university that begun as a university to teach ministers the gospel, how far they have fallen. But a man by the name of Peter Singer, again, the professor of bioethics, was perfectly fine with, with bestiality, except with chickens because you can kill a chicken. I want to ask the question, how does he know that? Like, that's you know strange. But, but can you imagine a tenured professor of bioethics at Princeton University writing papers in support of bestiality? So, so this isn't like, oh, no, this is just the Egyptians and the Canaanites. Again, this is something that we need to be mindful of, especially in a decadent and immoral age, When anything, just about everything, goes. Poole says, This is a horrible confusion of the natures which God hath distinguished, and of that order which God hath appointed, and an overthrow of all bounds of religion, honesty, sobriety, and modesty. It is vile, it is reprehensible, it is wicked, and it is condemned here. And that brings us finally to the warning to Israel, verses 24 to 30. There's three things here. We won't spend a lot of time. It's a quick quick three things. Note the rationale for the conquest in verses 24 and 25, the responsibility to obey on the part of Israel in verses 26 and 27, and then the reminder concerning God's judgment in verses 28 to 30. Note specifically the rationale for the conquest in verses 24 and 25. When you read the Bible, and you read Deuteronomy 7, and you read Exodus 23, and where God says, I want you to go, children of Israel, in the land of Canaan, and I want you to utterly destroy everything there. I want you to kill everybody. Just engage in you know, a massive campaign to rid the land of all these Canaanites. People read that or hear that and they say, that, that's not fair. That doesn't seem right. These poor innocent people minding their own business. And here come these Israelites to come in and stomp them in the name of Yahweh. Well, we'll look at what Yahweh says in verses 24 and 25. Do not defile yourselves with any of these things. For by all these the nations are defiled, which I am casting out before you. For the land is defiled, therefore I visit the punishment of its iniquity upon it, and the land vomits out its inhabitants. In other words, God's sending Israel into the land of Canaan on a mission of justice and judgment. He is going to purge the land of that which defiles it. Davis makes the uh, comment, he says the conquest is not a bunch of land-hungry marauders wiping out at the behest of their vicious God hundreds of innocent God-fearing folks. In the biblical view, the God of the Bible uses none too righteous Israel as the instrument of his just judgment on a people who had persistently reveled in their iniquity, it's an act of judgment. And look at the language that is used there in verse 25. The land is defiled, therefore I visit the punishment of its iniquity upon it, and the land vomits out its inhabitants. Why do you vomit? Because something nasty is in your stomach. There's something nasty in the land, so the land vomits out the inhabitants. That's the language Jesus uses in Revelation chapter 3 with the Laodicean church, because they're neither hot nor cold, but they're lukewarm in his mouth, I will spit you, spew you, I will vomit you out of my mouth. The same sort of covenantal significance with that lackluster professing church there in Laodicea. The land was central in Old Covenant Israel. Christ is central in New Covenant Israel. He's the one that spits out apostates, just like the land of Canaan spit out the apostates and the defectors in the Old Covenant. And then notice the responsibility to obey. So based on that, don't do what they're doing because this is why I'm throwing them out. Notice in verse 26, you shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments and shall not commit any of these abominations, either any of your own nation or any stranger who dwells among you. They could not compel the stranger to imbibe Israel's religion. But they could compel the stranger not to engage in outward acts of evil. Brethren, that is a fundamental thing that we have lack. We can't make people Christians. Yeah, but they ought to obey the law. They, they ought to do what God says. There ought to be this, again, civil or political use of the law to restrain the abject wickedness of man. So the law is comprehensive. It's for the Israelites. It is for the the stranger in the land. It is for the Canaanites and the Egyptians before them. It is for the Apostle Paul when he writes to the church at Corinth. This is binding legislation upon all men at all times. And then notice the reason the land is defiled. Once again, verse 27, "For uh, uh, For all these abominations the men of the land have done who were before you, and thus the land is defiled. Now, notice the warning concerning God's judgment. God is consistent. Again, that Davis quote, the conquest is not a bunch of land-hungry marauders wiping out at the behest of their vicious God. People say that. Well, God's vicious. That's terrible. That all those poor Canaanites were were done uh, 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 conquered by the Israelites. What happens when the Israelites go into the land? They become like the Canaanites. What happens when the Israelites become like the Canaanites? God raises up Assyria and the land vomits out the northern tribes. What happens when the Israelites become like the Canaanites? God raises up Babylon and they are vomited out of the land. What happens when the Israelites become like the Canaanites? God raises up the Romans and they're vomited out of the land. God is not arbitrary. God is not capricious. God doesn't wake up on a Monday and say, you know, I don't like those Canaanites. Go in there and take care of business, Israel. No, when Israel apes the Canaanites, Israel brings upon them the same judgment. And that's the emphasis in verse 28. Lest the land vomit you out also when you defile it, as it vomits vomited out the nations that were before you. For whoever, whoever commits any of these abominations, the persons who commit them shall be cut off from among their people. And then the summary statement in verse 30, therefore you shall keep my ordinance so that you do not commit any of these abominable customs uh, which were committed before you and that you do not defile yourselves by them. I am the Lord your God. Well, there's exposition real quick, and then we're done. I, 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 gotta, I, I would be remiss if I didn't add this. Romans 10 and Galatians 3. The apostle invokes Leviticus 18.5. In a bit of a different context, he is dealing with justification by faith alone. The contrast to justification by faith alone is justification by law or by works alone. Well, the law or the works principle demands exact, entire, and perpetual obedience. If we opt for works, it must be with perfection. And that's Paul's point in Romans 10:5. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does these things shall live by them. The righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ uh, from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith which we preach, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So there's a contrast. The way of approach, via law, the man who does them shall be uh, shall live by the, Paul says it cannot be the case, and I would suggest that's exactly the message in the old covenant. It is a covenant of works designed to show them constantly their need for the Messiah to come. Notice in Galatians 3.10, for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things, not some things, but all things which are written in the book of the law to do them but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident for the just shall live by faith. Yet the law uh, is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. That's the principle. If you choose law, you better be perfect. And the point is you're not. So believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, because salvation is by grace through faith in him. Well, I'll close in prayer and then if there are any questions, we can deal with that. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for even difficult passages like Leviticus 18 and what they show us concerning God's absolute holiness and glory and sovereignty and majesty and man's sinfulness. Certainly, Solomon was in fact right. We do seek out many devices and we know in our own generation, we know through all generations sexual sin seems to be a a, a primary emphasis in the hearts of wicked men. God Keep us and guard us and watch over us. And Lord, help us to deal with remaining corruption. Help us to deal in a way that is pleasing in your sight. And may you fill us with your Holy Spirit. And may you guard us and may you help us to walk carefully before you. And we ask this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, any questions or comments? Thank you. Oh, You're welcome. Yes. How many? Eight point five. Okay. But in Arab countries, it's up to sixty percent. Egypt, eighty percent. Just religious, cultural. Yeah, cultures. yeah. I it I think it's legal in Canada. First cousin, first cousin love. A uh, famous example was FDR hmm. and Yes. be a suggestion of people getting rid of children from these relationships as well. Yeah, and I I think there's a theme too in in where you put your seed. You know, you're you're putting seed in the wrong places, in homosexuality, in bestiality, and when you throw it into the fire. There's a big emphasis on seed, especially in light of the messianic promise, the seed of the woman's going to crush the serpent. Um, and then, you know, that would be the specific, the messianic import. But then generally, right? I mean, babies are a blessing. And it ought not to be a surprise that there's such a war against them. God says, be fruitful and multiply. And yet the world says, no, don't have, you know, don't have babies. Well, so it just makes me think of, like, when we have the life change and stuff. It often seems to be, you know, middle-aged men who are the ones giving the middle finger and yeah. getting angry. And I'm like... There's some young, there's some young, young, well I know, but women. Women, women too, yeah, yeah. I but on so. the men department, I yeah. sometimes wonder why are you so adamant to yeah. kill? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Because it's a more personal responsibility. Principle. Yeah, yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah, it's a, it's a convenience. All right. Well Sweet dreams tonight. <laughs> <laughs>